0: Grab your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 18. In both rooms today, if you don't have a Bible with you, here in the West, there's, uh, there are some Bibles in the rack. in the East. They are, some people are moving around with them right now. And guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and I'm very glad you're with us. Um, if, you, if you don't know a Bible, take that one home as our gift to you. We'd be really honored if you would do that. As we start looking at Matthew 18 today, I want to say thank you to you uh, for what took place in July. Here you go, what took place in July? Well, each July, I step away from my preaching responsibilities. I take uh, the month to really kind of focus on some study to prepare what we're going to look at preaching-wise into the fall and then into the coming year. So in, throughout the last month, I've been looking at where, what, are we, what are we preaching in, July, in the fall and then what are we doing in 2018 and... Um, In the meanwhile, while I've been doing that, of course, uh, other staff members have been preaching uh, regularly and uh, they've been carrying along with this series of Matthew that we've been looking at. You recall that when we started this series back in January, we said we'd take a long, slow walk and we'd review Jesus' ministry through the eyes of Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. What did this biographer of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who did Jesus' ministry life with him, what did he learn and what can we learn from him? And uh, so the, the, the various topics and passages that we've looked at uh, since January, we'll finish it in on Labor Day... Um. Jonathan put them together for us as we said, uh, let's look at Matthew. John was, Jonathan was, if you will, assigned the task. Over eight months, how would you break up the topics of Jesus in Matthew? And he spent some days looking at that and came back with a list. And then we said, okay, here's who's preaching this and preaching that and so forth and so on. And so then July came along and Brian was for the most part in the pulpit along with BJ on one occasion. And, and uh, last week, Brian did this great job dealing with Jesus and children. And um, it was a lovely sermon focusing on babies. It was all very kind and sweet and very loving. And, and okay, I'm really glad, except until about towards the middle of July, I started thinking, okay, Wayne, what are you preaching on when you get to August? Brian's going to finish his run, if you will, through July, and he's going to talk about the babies. What's the, what do you get to deal with? Great. You should see what's coming. Forgiveness and bitterness today... Next week, divorce and remarriage. And the week after that, um, money. Welcome back to the pulpit, Wade. <laughs> what, could be, what could be easier? You know, you've got Brian and all his lovely photos of all the babies. You know, did you see that? And then, and then I've got this business. So let's see what Jesus had to say about forgiveness. You can hardly wait. Okay, can't we go back to the babies and, you know, be kind and sweet? Well, we're going to be kind and sweet, but we're going to experience what Jesus had to say about bitterness of soul. And uh, beginning in chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, Jesus starts talking about forgiveness and uh, how he does it. He gives some instructions and then he tells a story. I want us to reverse that for the sake of just figuring it out today. I want to tell the story with you and then we'll go from there to see why the instru- how, how these instructions that he gave kind of were the catalyst for the story. So um, he's, been at, he's, gonna, he's talking about forgiveness and as he's talking about forgiveness in verse 21... Peter, one of his disciples, in light of what do you mean I'm supposed to forgive and so forth, he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? This is somebody who I know. This is a friend. This is a family member. This is a relationship that's pretty close to me, and they really mess up, and I'm angry with them. Should I forgive them? And Jesus says, well, not just seven times. Peter says, do I forgive up to seven times? And, and Jesus, no, seven times you haven't even started. You've got to go 77 times to. you got to forgive that many times. And with that, in light of this question from Peter and the discussion about forgiveness, Jesus tells a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, uh, we, we hear that, that line, 10,000 bags of gold, we have no idea what it's worth. What, what's 10,000 bags? It's a lot of gold, right? Well, in, in Jesus' day, they would have understood that to be 20 years of annual wages. 20 years, or how, do you, how much do you make every year and multiply that by 20 times? Like, if you were, if you were to make $50,000 a year, some people in the room probably here today, you make more than 50, some less than 50, but if $50,000 is kind of a sort of salary that people have, you're talking about 20 years of that, you're talking about a million dollars. So you got a guy who owns the master, a million bucks, okay? As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. In verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. And I want you to notice the language. Be patient with me, he says. Be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. And all he just said, well, we'll wait a while. He actually canceled the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. Now again, the people of that day would have understood what Jesus was talking about. 100 silver coins was the equivalent about of a a day's wage if you were a day laborer. A day laborer walks up to a job site and says, I'd like to work for eight hours. And usually in our culture, that'd be about $12 an hour, perhaps. So it's, it's 96 bucks for eight hours' work. It's, call it 100 bucks. A million dollars versus $100. It's significantly different, right? One owes a million, one owes 100. But the guy says, I want my 100 bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Same language in verse 29. As in verse 26, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Two guys, similar scenarios, except the money involved is significantly different. But he refused, verse 30. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. You can imagine this, right? You can imagine, man, this, is, this guy is he's out of control. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So remember, this is, this is not a discussion about money. That's coming in a couple of weeks. This is a discussion about forgiveness and What does Jesus say? In light of the story, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I guess you could say a simple understanding of the story is this. If you've been forgiven of some matter, if you've received grace, then you should extend grace. Now, this is not a new teaching that the disciples are hearing. It's late in Jesus' ministry career when this comes up. But they have been hearing this business about forgiveness all the way along. As a matter of fact, you've heard it too. Back in Matthew chapter 6, uh, the Lord's prayer is recorded. His disciples come to Jesus and they say, how shall we pray? And uh, then Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Each week you say this, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And then in light of the story that's coming many months down the road, Jesus says, the way in which you forgive is the way in which God's going to forgive you. Then ironically, months earlier, Jesus has said that you should pray and forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins, as you will, as we also have forgiven our debtors, the people who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, in the book of Matthew, there is no for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As a matter of fact, what you have is Jesus giving the prayer, ending it with lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the very next verse, it's almost like he's saying, okay, this is how you pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, evil, from the evil one. And it's like he opens eye, his eyes and he's going, hey, in light of what we just prayed, prayed, can I tell you this? That if you forgive other people when they sin against you, you've wanted to know, God, forgive me my debts, forgive me my sins. It's like it's, it's, it's thought, made a thought process in Jesus' mind going, okay, the prayer is over. Now, in light of the prayer, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What's going on here? If I don't forgive them their sins, God won't forgive me my sins? Apparently, our willingness, our ability, our cho- the choices we make to forgive others impacts God's forgiveness of us. And... You're responding like me, I suspect. You're going, hey, but what about divine grace? I thought Jesus died on the cross so that, so that I, there's nothing that I have to do to earn or to merit God's grace or the forgiveness of my sins. Um, what's with that? It does seem odd, doesn't it? Because you have in Protestant circles, in evangelical circles, in Roman Catholic circles, all... All of Christendom agrees with this, that Jesus' death on the cross forgave sins once and for all. That he completed Calvary's work, that when he died, death was defeated and sin was defeated. And by grace, Scripture says, by grace you've been saved, not that of yourselves, so that you don't boast. But it is a free gift of God. We get forgiveness freely, and yet what's with this? Jesus' words are also pointing to some sort of reciprocal grace what's going on? Jesus' story about the man who shows no mercy. He, 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 Jesus comes at the end of verse 335. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What? Well, may I remind you that this statement in this story that Jesus made was prompted by a question that Peter, one of Jesus' closest confidants, had asked. How often should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven times enough. Peter comes to Jesus and says, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, if you're only going seven times, that's to nowhere near enough. You've got to go beyond that. You've got to go to 77 times. Now, what's interesting about that statement is, in another situation that another uh, follower of Jesus records, uh, Luke, who goes back years later and and interviews everybody who was around Jesus, he records a similar moment, and he says, and he has Jesus saying this: that even if they uh, even if they sin against you seven times in a day, not just seven times, but seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, "I repent." What do you have to do? You have to forgive them. That's a lot of forgiveness. Seven times a day. What if it's two days in a row? 14 times? Are you going to count 14 times? What if it's 365 days in a row? 365 times seven. So you're going 365. Let me tell you, I did it for you. 2,555 times. In the year, you have to forgive that person 2,555 times. Forgiveness number one, number two, number three, number 3,300. Are you going to count them all? Here's the point if you're starting to count the times when you offer forgiveness, you've lost the point of Jesus' understanding here. The people who follow Jesus are people who extend grace. We receive grace, and in response to that, we offer grace. Verse 35, chapter 18, at the end of the story. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And I know some, in the, some of us here are going, yeah, that's great, Jesus. That's great, Wayne. But, but you don't know the way my family treats me. You, you, you don't know the story of my ex-spouse. Or, Wayne, you don't know the story of my mother, my aunt, my co-workers. I, I, when it comes to grace, I have nothing left. My grace bucket for them is empty. They just go on and on and on and on. The insults and the offenses that come to me are like the song that never ends. You know, this is the song that never ends. If you know that song, it never ends. Except that's a nice melody. And the melody that they keep throwing at you, their life melody, their life lyrics that has no end is not nice. What do you do in that situation? I'm reminded of what's taking place in a German town by the name of Habelstadt in this regard. Isn't that a great name, Habelstadt? I'm going to say that a lot in the next few minutes just because I can, and I like it. Habelstadt, Habelstadt, Habelstadt. Habelstadt is a community that has 40,000 people living in it, okay? It's not a very large town. It's not a big city where everybody's going to, okay, we've got to go there and see, be a tourist to Habelstadt. Nobody goes to Habelstadt, except actually they do. They go to see a pipe organ there. They go to Hubelstadt to see a pipe organ. What's with, you want to go see a pipe organ? It's not my thing I would like to go see necessarily, but there's one in Hubelstadt they go see. Historians believe that the very first pipe organ invented was invented in Hubelstadt in in, uh, 1361. That, That instrument is now long gone. But there's an organ in St. Bacardi's church in Hubblestadt that, well, it's playing a song that never ends right now. Right now, today. It's playing a song automatically. You maybe you know this, that if you press the keys on an organ, they just go on. It's not like a piano where the piano, where the sound dies. But with an organ, you press that key down, it just stays playing until you release the key. As long as there's electricity to pump the billows, it keeps going. So here's what's going on. There was an avant-garde composer by the name of John Cage. He died a number of years ago. He wrote a piece that's called As Slow As Possible. It's a series of chords together, and the only tempo markings on how to play it is to play it as slowly as possible. So the people in St. Bercati's Church in Haberstadt decided they're going to put that song to the test. They looked at that piece and they said, okay, well, let's start playing the song and we'll play it as slowly as possible. They started. <laughs> this would be a great gig if you're an organist. Great gig. Because what they did, they started on September 5th, 2001. 16 years ago now. And the, and it's, the song starts with a big rest. No, nothing. So for a long time they did nothing, but they were still playing the song. Okay. <laughs> And then, they've they've only played, in in all those years since 2001, they've only played 12 chords. So, imagine if this, if I, if, okay, I don't know, I'm not not familiar with particularly what the chords are. But say it's this chord. And on a piano, notice that it's getting softer and softer. On the organ, it never does. They've put, um, they've got uh, solar panels. To give batteries and also a backup generator in case the electricity goes out. So, this is going on and on and on and on and on and on and on, okay? In the, in the time since 2001, they've only had 13 chords play. And you know how long they're gonna let it play? They're gonna let it, they're gonna, the organist comes and puts weights on the keys every time they change chords and this leaves it there. And it's gonna keep playing until September 5th in 2640. They're going to play it for 639 years. It is the song that never ends or close to it. And that's your life at times, isn't it? When it comes to the insults and the offenses and the hurts and the trespasses and sins that come against you. Isn't that what it feels like? 639 times of years. And you're supposed to forgive seven times a day on each of those years, and you're going, man, it just keeps coming. It's a song that never ends. And you know what? Jesus says, keep forgiving. What? For how long and how often? Well, let's say that, remember that I said that Jesus started with instructions and then told a story, and we were going to tell the story and then look at the instructions. So in light of the fact that we've looked at the story, what are the instructions? Matthew chapter 18. Take a look at it with me again. Beginning at verse 15. That's where these are where the instructions are. If your brother or sister sins against you, go. If they've done something to offend you, if if they've done something where you're offended, right? If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So somebody's done something to you, and whose responsibility is to point that out and say, Well, I want to make this right? You are to go and forgive. They've offended, you're hurt, you go. But what if it's true is on the other fault, fo- on the other foot, pardon me, where you offend somebody? Is it their responsibility to come to you, or is it your responsibility to go to them? Well, Matthew has Jesus addressing that same situation. One where I'm offended. I should go to them, but what if I offend them? Matthew 5 says this, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, as you are offering your life before God, I mean, maybe communion time, communion's coming up yet today, and you're saying, God, have me who I am. As you are offering the gift of your life, if you remember that you have sinned against your brother or sister, what are you supposed to do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and off your gift. So before you take communion, you could say, i got to go get it right with so-and-so. See, sometimes the offense is from others to us, in which case we're supposed to go. But when when we offend somebody else, what's he saying? It's still your responsibility to go. It's like there's this offense in the middle of the room, in the middle of the relationship. It's the elephant in the room. And it doesn't really matter who created the offense. Did you notice who is responsible for initiating the conversation about forgiveness and resolution? Whether or not you were the one offended or whether or not you were the offender. Matthew 18, Matthew 5 says you still have the responsibility either way to go and say, can we get this conversation straightened around? You, if they offend me, man, I get to be all full of, gall- I'll be a man of gallantry and grace. I get to go and say, I, I forgive you of what you've done for me. But when I offend someone else, it's still my responsibility to ask them for gallantry and grace. Perhaps this graphic shows it best. It doesn't matter who is the offending party. Both parties have 100% of the responsibility to bring about new life in the relationship and a new hope. But once again, undoubtedly, some are thinking today, Yeah, but Wayne... That's great. That's that's really nice spiritual platitudes, but you don't know what happened. You don't know what my ex did. You don't know what it was like living with my mother. And Wayne, you don't know what my dad did to me, or Pastor, you don't know what the man next door did to me. Or preacher, you don't know what it was like in that former church. You're correct, I do not. I do not know the life story and circumstances that are buried down deep within each of us here. But I would say this, if I could start to address that by speaking to to the issues, let's say, about the church. If your struggle is with a specific congregation, maybe this congregation or another congregation, or the larger church in general with a capital C, let me start there, okay? Let me start by saying, I've served this church since 1994. It's a lot of years. And in those years, I know my actions have offended some people along the way. And I'll say it straight up. If I've offended you, please forgive me. There are times when leadership decisions or leadership actions have brought pain into people's lives. I get that sometimes that's how it goes. I'm... Not that I'm cool with it, but I understand that sometimes you have to make decisions that not everybody's happy with. But that doesn't account for the fact that, straight up, there are times, though, when my own humanness and my own personality quirks have been offensive. They've caused you pain. And I would ask you to forgive me. Forgive me for, for the moments when I was callous. Forgive me for the moments when I didn't pay attention. Forgive me for the moments when I said bad things, because I've done them. I know I have. Forgive my errors and sins against you, please. Please. And then if I, could, if I could shift gears and put on, rather than just the personal hat, could I also speak as a clergyman, as a, an official within the church, okay, to the larger sea. That, that's the title I have. Can, whether or not it's this church or the large church or another congregation, when matters of the church have offended you, can I officially, on behalf of the clergy and the leaders of churches, ask you for forgiveness? Because like you, the leaders of congregations and the leaders of the church, we are in desperate need We are in desperate need to have forgiveness extended to us because of the mistakes we make personally and the mistakes we make professionally. Please forgive us for that. Forgive us through the grace of Jesus Christ that is found within your own heart. And I would like to suggest to you why you should forgive us and use it as a catalyst to think about how you could forgive and why you should forgive others as well. Because... You've got Jesus called to do it, and that's great. But sometimes you go, "Yeah, but I can't f- always get to where Jesus is." I-, I understand that, but apart from that, why would be what would be a good reason for you to ex- consider forgiveness? Well, the answer to that is based on the line between non-forgiveness and bitterness. I th- here's what I mean: I think at the core of our belly, all of us realize that lack of forgiveness on our part is just unhealthy. We know it leads to anger and bitterness. And um, the Bible does talk about that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, for example, to get rid of all bitterness, get rid of all rage and anger, along with every form of malice. And You know, if you talk about problems in relationships, isn't that it right there when you've got bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, every form of... That's that's a, a relationship problem. And instead of doing that, what should you do? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Okay, how? Well, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay, in the same way that I forgive others, forgive me or I want to forgive others. And yet, and Paul says, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Apparently, you got this business of bitterness and rage and forgiveness that there's a line somehow between non-forgiveness and bitterness. There's a cord, a rope, a string of some sort, and I don't know how long that is. I don't know if non-forgiveness resides in your heart, how long you have to go before it becomes bitterness. If it's that long, I don't know if you've got non-forgiveness in your heart, if you have to walk for a long time. I don't know where that, how long that line is, but I'm quite aware. Ephesians 4 says, you want to get rid of bitterness and rage, and you want to get rid of that by forgiving. I do know this that if non-forgiveness resides in our hearts, somewhere along the line, it becomes a bitter root in your belly and leaves a sour taste in your mouth. See, part of this is that forgiveness is not about the other person. I mean, it's great if they get it, if they understand it, but at its base, it's about your heart. It's about letting go. They may still drone on for another 639 years yet. That person may already be dead, or it may be unwise to step back into an unhealthy, very bad relationship. Whatever the case. You know, who are we kidding? There's a lot of people on this planet, and you don't like all of them. You know you don't, do you? As of of, uh, April this year, there are 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. As of from January to this time, we've already had 83 million babies be born. Aren't they lovely, Brian and his lovely babies? But what about their parents? Some of them are not so lovely, are they? And they're the ones you deal with. Some of them are just plum ugly. And I'm not talking about what they look like. Though that may be the case too. I don't know. But there are 7.5 billion people on this planet and you're not going to get along with every one of them. Not all of them are going to be your BFF, best friends forever. Life brings difficult moments into relationships and forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship is always restored to that BFF approach every every time. No. But Paul, the apostle says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Forgiveness is your part of the if it's possible portion of living at peace. I don't know all 7.5 billion people and if I knew them all, there's a bunch of them I wouldn't like. I know. There may even be some people in that church I don't like. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? Was I thinking that or did that just, I don't... My point is I can't... You don't have to be best friends with everybody. But as far as is possible with you, can you be at peace with them? Because if you can, suddenly this bitterness cord and this bitterness root, this bitterness line is chopped off. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Apparently being peaceful has something to do with being holy. And see to that no one falls short of the grace of God. If you want the extent God of grace extended to you, then don't mess with this forgiveness business because if you do that then no bitter root will grow up to cause trouble and defile many. Do you see? The the writer's posture saying, if you can grab this posture of peace, it will eliminate bitterness. I guess you can put it this way. You got a sore or a wound of bitterness in your soul, then forgiveness is the antidote. Forgiveness is the ointment you can put on that. It's the antidote to anger and forgiveness. It's not easy. But did, it, did ever, anyone ever say that following Jesus was easy? No, this isn't some sort of you know surface-level spiritual platitude. Forgiveness doesn't take away the offense per se. There's no guarantee the other person will respond in peace and will respond in a new approach to the relationship. Just because you've forgiven them doesn't mean they forgive you. There may still be struggle in the relationship and it may go on for another 639 years on their part. But forgiveness on your part, living at peace with others as far as possible with you, does mean this. It means you're applying an antidote to the anger and bitterness sore. That would otherwise infect your soul. And if you can get there, even if they do drone on for another 639 years and they continue to direct pain and insult and struggle at you, yet what do you do? You get to experience the grace of God, grace for them, and grace for you. Let's pray. Lord, for my friends, all of them, God. Everyone in this congregation today, we, um, we're men and women, we're kids, Lord, who um, have relationship issues. And we have the seven and a half billion people on the earth. We know some of them. And uh, sometimes it's really sweet and lovely and kind and there seems to be a generous spirit. There are other times, God, when it just goes bad. And uh, anger grows up and it's not long before bitterness steps in. We pray, God, that you would deal with us in the depths of our souls. And enable us, O oh God. Enable us to be people of forgiveness. We're going to pray, Lord, in a few minutes to forgive us our debts as you forgive our debtors. In the same way, Lord, that we're growing in our forgiveness of others. God, forgive us for bitterness, for anger. Call us to better behavior, regardless of anyone else's behavior, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.